As we get into this particular section of Ephesians, we are, are which is 5.22 through 6.9, we are technically in what's referred to as the house codes, which is this section of Ephesians, sections of Colossians, and then some small parts in Titus and 1 Peter. The house codes, uh, the way they're framed, is because these scriptures seem to be intended to guide believers in functioning in their everyday lives, especially when assaulted by a cultural worldview that, that is out of alignment with what the scripture teaches. And, and this is needed today, it's applicable today, but it was written particularly to address a lot of the changes that were taking place, that were happening in the lives of Christians in the first century. Uh, Christianity then, like today, was out of alignment with the culture as a whole, and there was, there was no historic Christian worldview because it was new, right? Have you, have you ever considered that? We, we grew up, most of us grew up with some form of a Christian worldview just growing up in America. If you grew up in Ephesus or Greek uh, or, or, or any of the Greek areas, this was new, right? What, what do we do? How, do you, how do you act as a Christian? So these house codes were kind of set to address that. And, and Paul was writing them to teach them how to function as Christians in their world. And marriage during this time, right? Marriage during this time was more of a business arrangement than it was companionship, even among the Jews. Um, women, wives in particular, the main function was have children, hopefully sons, right? Companionship usually happened unfortunately, some other woman. Marriage during this time also was, was um, well, the household itself was not, the house, the home, was not viewed as a place of refuge, right? right? You go home now to get away from your job, right? I mean, I, in, a, in a sense, that it's kind of, you know, this is my refuge, my, my castle type thing. Um, this particular time, it what took place in the household the, the, was a place, the household was something where work actually took place. Things were produced, whether it was food or goods that were sold or some of those types of things. You couldn't go down to the grocery store and buy stuff. Um, and women were expected to oversee a lot of these uh, domestic duties that were related to that. And, and honestly, for the majority of, of the culture, wives were commodities, they weren't companions. And, and, and by, design, by design, there was not a lot of mutual love or mutual submission taking place in the typical first century marriage. And not say every marriage, but, but it was but common. And despite the way marriage and women in particular were treated during this time, during the time of Paul's writing, Paul's actually not giving new instruction. He, it, this isn't... Now that you're a Christian, how do you live as a, as a husband and a wife? At what he's doing, he is recapturing the biblical model of marriage that was established in creation. A model that had been abused and abandoned by those who were in authority in Israel and, and, and really throughout the world. And last week we looked at authority and submission and mutual submission and how that affects our everyday lives, what it looks like in our everyday lives as well as how God uses that as part of the order of creation for our good, as well as the good of all people. And we looked at mutual submission within the body of Christ and how that's being used to promote unity and promote the gospel. But marriage, biblical marriage, 
is a unique example of this because while it has benefits for society and for the world as a whole, a true biblical marriage is actually a physical representation of a spiritual truth. And in this section of Ephesians 5, 22-33, both of these ideas are presented by the Apostle Paul. And what I mean is that Paul is not simply giving instructions to married couples. He gives purpose, motivation, and benefits in this passage. But if we focus too much on the one single aspect of this text, we're going to miss the point of the entire section. And in my opinion, it's why so many marriages struggle and argue over this passage because they focus on the narrow view of this one little section about wives submit to your husbands or husbands love your wives and miss the overall what Paul's writing in this section of Ephesians. Um, because we just tend to, to narrow it and focus too hard. These four verses, the, the 22 through 24, they're not standalone verses or instructions. This passage can't be removed from the broader context of chapter 5. Because while there are instructions to wives and husbands that clearly need to be considered and addressed, and we're going to do that this morning, the heart of this passage is actually about Christ and the gospel and how marriage plays a role in that. So let's look at, um, at verse 22 through 33. I'm going to read 22 through 33, but we're actually going to focus on 22 through 24 this morning. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having been cleansed by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love your wives as, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of this body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mis this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, the first thing we need to recognize, first idea we need to recognize from this passage is that marriage is established as part of creation. I already said that Paul's not giving new instruction on how to live. Instead, he's actually recapturing the biblical order, the, the purpose of marriage established in creation. He wasn't writing these things in, in order to tell families how to, how to function in this uh, fallen cultural patriarchy, uh, as some have tried to claim. This isn't Paul's way of surrendering just to the culture that they happen to be living in at the time. It's actually, I, I, I read some of those arguments this week, and I thought that's an absurd way to look at this text because you don't, nobody applies that to other passages of Scripture. This isn't capitulation to the unnecessary patriarchy that we've fallen into in our world, right? The concept of marriage and family structure and authority is actually established in the creation story, and, 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 and you, we need to look at that. Flip over to, um, to Genesis chapter 2. In, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is created. All the male and female animals have been created as a pair, which is, which is important. And Adam has named them. 
But then the Godhead speaks and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And look in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 2. It said, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with the flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And we're going to look at this a little deeper in a, in a few weeks, because uh, I think it's going to be very necessary that we, that we look at it and, and kind of narrow this to look at some things related to marriage. But there's one thing we need to understand if we're going to embrace Paul's instruction in this portion of Ephesians, and it's that marriage is a physical representation of a spiritual truth, and the truth is this, it's about the relationship between Christ and the church. God created marriage to illustrate the relationship between God and his people. We see that throughout the Old Testament, and the best example is in the book of Hosea. But in verse 32, Paul tells us that there is a profound mystery revealed here that marriage is a physical representation of the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ and the church is actually referenced eight times in verses 22 through 33, and it keeps going back to Christ and the church. And, and while marriage is a God-ordained institution that is part of the sun that shines on the just and the unjust, and we should encourage marriage for everyone, it's what's best for society, it's what's best for family, it's what's best for the kids, it's ordained by God. However, no unbeliever will truly ever fully understand the nature and the purpose of marriage without being filled with the Spirit of God. And it's why, in my opinion, we are never going to win the cultural battle over gay marriage because we're not even having the same conversation. We should still fight. But in reality, we're not talking about the same thing. Because God created marriage to illustrate the relationship with Christ, between Christ and the church as part of the gospel. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 32. It's the reason why it's so damaging to the gospel and to the kingdom and to the reputation of the gospel for people who profess to be Christians to be divorcing at the same rates as those who are unbelievers. And, and although that statistic does seem to be improving... And, and just FYI, the 50% statistic actually hasn't been a thing since the, since the mid-90s. It's actually around 35% now for various reasons, some good, some not so good. But it's, this is also another reason that Christians shouldn't unequally yoke, uh, use 1 Corinthians language there, uh, sh Christians shouldn't marry unbelievers, it is spiritually impossible for an unbeliever and a Christian to have the same view and purpose of marriage. And while it may be good for a good marriage in the eyes of the world, and it may be operating in a good way, it's not to say it's going to be terrible, it will never function properly as part of the purpose of representing Christ in the church. And that's the ideal. When, when marriage is functioning as designed by God at creation... Two people who have joined together in a covenant of marriage and are both filled with the Spirit will model their God-given roles and in turn their marriage will be a reflection of God as part of the filling of the Spirit in the life of the believer. It will be a reflection of Christ and His church and His love for His bride, the church. 
And although the concept of authority and submission in marriage seems like an abomination to the world that's, that's filled with pride and selfishness and things like radical feminism and those obsessed with identity politics, they can't understand because they're not filled with the Spirit. They need Jesus. They need repentance. They need salvation. And I don't want to be callous. I don't want to come across as cold. I know there are people, I know there are some ladies in our church that are, that are married to unbelievers. You, and, and I'm not diminishing or dismissing your marriage. Marriage is good, instituted by God at creation. Strive to have the best marriage you can. But the call here for submission also applies to you. Do it even with an unbelieving husband because the, that's the divine plan. Where even if any of them are, even if they're disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your pure and respectful behavior. But for believers, while the implementation may not be perfect, the concept should not be a struggle for us as Christians who believe the Bible is the Word of God. And if we are a people of the book, we will stand firm against the temptation to be pulled into worldly thinking concerning marriage roles and gender roles, even parent and child roles that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Parents are the authority in their home. And in a marriage, when a husband and wife embrace these God-given roles and responsibilities that they have in marriage, that marriage will reflect a pure nature of, of the gospel and a marriage that's a beacon of what a changed, regenerated, born-again life can look like to a lost world. And in that way, we live out the gospel, and, and we do so with joy, not compulsion. It, it's why I get so frustrated when I hear things like, well, if my husband were leading properly, I'd submit, or flip that. And if my wife were submitting, I would love her. Neither one of those things are true. <laughs> That, in fact, I, I think that attitude towards this passage completely misses the point of the passage. So why did I jump all the way down to verse 32? Well, I really wanted to establish some motivation before we, before we got into there. I wanted to look at the why before we got into the how. So let's read 22 through 24 one more time. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now last week, if you remember, we established a working definition of submission. What's biblical submission, mutual submission, those types of things from verse 21. So keep that in mind as we look at this passage. I think it's worth mentioning here especially in this day and age, that Paul did not tell wives to submit to men, submit to your own husbands, right? And this language is actually very intentional, especially in the historical and cultural context. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But women are not instructed to be submissive to men. And the reason this matters, I'll give you a practical reason it matters. In a, in a day like today where opportunities for women are greater than they have ever been in the business world, political world, historically greater than they've ever been, right? I bring this up because there is a discussion about authority taking place here and a woman can be an authority in one setting, such as her job, and still be submissive at home to her husband. Lisa and I were discussing that this week about some women I see model this and it's amazing to me how they find the balance there. 
And church, I believe particularly in the Baptist circles that I've spent a lot of my life in, we have not treated women with the proper respect they deserve. And there are some in, in popular Christian circles who, who not, maybe not directly but in practice, teach that women are inferior. In fact, I, I read a commentator this week that I've used in the past, and apparently I've never looked at him in this section of Ephesians, who literally said women are inferior. Literally. In the, and he's famous. I'm not going to get into who it is. He's well known. His stuff's out there. It's, he's, he's, and now he wrote a while back. But I was like, seriously, dude? Uh, But we do need to remember this. Both man and woman were created in the image of God, both equal, equal in the eyes of God, and should be seen as equal in the eyes of mankind. However, equal does not mean the same, right? It doesn't mean the same. And thank God, men and women are not the same. Who wants that? They're different. Different in physical ways, emotional ways, different in God-ordained roles. I'm never going to be a mother. Ever. For every reason you can think of. Even the obvious ones. Right? Ladies, you're never going to be dads. And when we get these things out of order, we create chaos in our own lives and chaos in the world. And we live in this chaos and we see it in the news and the television and constantly bombarded by it. And it's why we get so frustrated with the culture because they're creating chaos in the world and we know that and we understand it. And the message of Genesis, the, what Genesis teaches, and I, I for one thank God for the difference, that Genesis teaches that men and women are not the same. The Bible teaches that. But Paul did not say submit to men, but he did say submit to your own husbands, as unto the Lord. Now this is not saying that the husband is the Lord of the marriage, right? I've heard that. Like, the Bible says I'm Lord of my marriage. I'm like, okay, dude. You're not a very good one. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 husband's not the Lord of the marriage. Not, and, and you're not submitting to the husband in the same way you would to the Lord because that would mean you would have to be in perfect obedience to anything that your imperfect husband wanted, wanted from you. And as we've already established that we're only submissive to God-ordained authority when those authorities are not disobeying God's law. We discussed that a little bit last week. If a husband ever asks a wife to do anything immoral or unethical, she should, in perfectly good conscience, say no and tell her husband to go repent, right? As unto the Lord means you submit to your husband, just like verse 21 taught us, out of reverence for Christ. When you submit to your husband, it's an expression of your submission to Christ, And that's how the gospel is represented. And that's how you see the correlation between Christ and the church in marriage. Verse 23 says, For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. As we look at verse 23, we've got to keep it in context of overall of chapter 5. I'm actually pretty encouraged overall 
for the most part, by how the married couples at NBC interact with each other. Um, and this passage has been abused by a lot of Christian men who have taken this verse to declare they're the boss and the woman's got to do what I got to say. And, and husbands who abuse their God-given role of authority are walking on very dangerous ground because they've made the assumption that they're there, uh, that they get the authority from themselves when in reality it's a God-ordained responsibility. And I've seen guys walk around cocky and arrogant, their entire house just dreading for them to come home because of the way they treat their family. And I'm talking about Christians here, claim Christians. When you confront them on this, they, as a Christian brother, they come up with some lame interpretation of Ephesians 5, like, like some petty tyrant. How, however, in our modern world, there does tend to seem to be a, a tendency to want to soften this passage. Make it more palatable to cultural assault against Christianity in hopes we can somehow win them over by our compromise. And I have to be honest, it's, it is, is easier to deal with this text if you soften it. It is. It'd be easier to preach it. There's a way to preach this text. I'd be completely wrong, but it would make all y'all feel better, right? Um, but softening biblical truths does not make anyone come to Christ. It just makes us compromisers. Paul isn't saying that the husband is the boss, but he is maintaining that there is a biblical position of authority, order in marriage, and order in family relationships, which we've always already pointed out as part of creation. The husband is head of the wife in verse 23, expresses responsibility that the husband has. This is not a responsibility as in I'm the king of my castle. It's actually a responsibility of I'm a servant to my family. And we know from the following verses that it's a responsibility to love and nurture and to protect and to give oneself in that same servant leader mentality that we discussed last week in the relationship even um, among church leaders in the congregation. And you can see the parallel of this and what Christ did for the church by going to the cross and, and taking on the form of a servant. And, and this, this authority and responsibility, they're established not for the benefit of the husband, but actually for the benefit of the wife. Because left to ourselves, men will not treat wives and kids properly. Without the challenge and without the order and without the responsibility and the call to be loving and protecting and nurturing, without the Spirit of God being filled with the Spirit, husbands will not treat their wives properly. They won't even treat women properly, right? We got the whole Me Too movement to prove that. And as for the husband and wife, it is a reflection of Christ and what he did for the church when it's functioning properly. And then when we get to verse 24, Paul kind of doubles down. But he's not, he sounds like he's repeating himself, but there's actually a subtle lesson in verse 24. And we see it if we look back at 23 to the body analogy that Paul uses. He says, Christ is head of the church, the body submits to the head, but the head doesn't live without the body, and the body doesn't live without the head. If you cut your head off, the head dies and the body dies. Neither one of them is functioning without the other. They actually complement each other. The head wants what's best for the body as a whole. And when that doesn't actually happen, you know what we call that? We call it insanity. Right? And, th and then they'll make movies about it where guys will 
push themselves off cliffs and shopping carts. And you're like, what? Have you lost your mind? That's what we say, right? The head wants what's best for the whole, and it works in conjunction with the body in order to function. And they work together in perfect harmony towards a single goal. And there's no argument between the two because they're actually one. My hand doesn't fight with my brain. My, it, it doesn't. You know how hard it would be to convince me to punch myself in the face? Right? I've never done it. Why? Because I'm not hurting myself. There was a guy last week arrested for beating himself up. And what did they do? They took him to the hospital because they said, this guy's lost his mind. He was literally punching himself in the face. I, the, the, we, the head and the body function together towards one goal. This is actually part of the meaning of the becoming one flesh that, that Paul references in verse 32, and it comes out of Genesis chapter 2. And the admonishment for the wife to be in submission to her husband isn't a call for a wife to be a passive, cower, cowering weakling. It's a voluntary, thankful partnership of equal but different roles like Christ and the church that you see represented in a marriage when the marriage is functioning properly. And I, I understand that none of us have the ability to live this out perfectly. It's why you see this more. This is, this is, this, there's some commands here, but this is not going to happen if you're not filled with the Spirit. We are still under the category of the results of being filled with the Spirit. This is, we're not going to live this out perfectly. And I, and I fear we have a tendency to focus on the excesses and abuses rather than the ideal and use the excesses and the abuses as the reasons to not follow this. Or, or, or we give up the ideal because it's too hard or it assaults our pride in some way. But submission does not mean losing. It doesn't mean weakness. It actually takes strength and resolve. And, and this is not something we get to compromise on. When we, don't, we don't get to soften it to make it sound like something the world can swallow because they can't understand. These are God-ordained roles. And if we fight against them, we are literally fighting against the ordained order and creating chaos in our own lives. And wondering why we're struggling so in our marriages, in our life, in our family. Because we're creating the chaos by not functioning in our proper roles. God established this order for our good and for the sake of the gospel. And as we strive in our marriages to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. And, and yes, it's hard sometimes. And, and we don't live it out perfectly. But we do it because of what Christ did for us. And we see him as our example of the person who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so wives, submit to your husbands, not out of compulsion, but out of reverence for Christ. I, I, I want to finish. I, I wanna, I, there's a John Stott quote on this that I just absolutely loved that I want to wrap up with. He says, never make the mistake of dragging your understanding of the love of God in Christ down to the level of your own weak love. Rather, let God draw your love up by the love and the power of Christ to his standard. Then Christ shall have his way, and you'll be able to testify to the world of his great love. And that will happen 
through a God-ordained biblical marriage. Amen? Let's pray.